Microphone working? Good, good. Good morning. Great to see you all. My name's uh, Mike Morrison. I'm on staff here at Forest Grove Church working with the young adults. It's my privilege and honor and joy to get to bring the Word of God to us this morning. And I truly hope that that's what we can hear it as, the Word of God, a revelation from God, Him showing us His very self through His scriptures. That's the only real way to hear this. So I just pray that our hearts can be softened to hear Him today. Uh, Today we're starting a brand new series that's going to be running throughout the summer. And uh, it's in the book of James. We're calling it Spinning Gold from Straw. So before you try to figure out what the heck is going on with that, uh, the reason why we're giving this series this title has nothing to do with anything that's actually in the book of James. Uh, This is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek remark on how some have viewed James in the church's past, and we'll get into that more in a minute. If you've ever read the book of James before, I hope you have, you've probably noticed that there are some things about it that make it very unique make it kind of stand out as different from other books, especially books in the New Testament. And maybe some of these unique things are are the things that have drawn you to this book and have made you appreciate it, especially among some of the other books of the New Testament. So these are just some of the unique things that we're going to see in the book of James as we walk through it. Some of these things you might be aware of already. First of all, it's a short book. We're going to like that. It's a short book. It's only five chapters. There's not a complex structure to James. So generally speaking, you can usually pick up pretty much anywhere in the book, kind of put your finger down, start reading, and you'll be able to figure out what's going on. You'll be able to follow through. There's not a complex thread of argument that you really need to follow there. So that's nice. It's a very direct book. That's another thing that people like about it. Uh, You want to know what to do as a Christian? You go to James. He'll tell you, and he has no problem in telling you what to do. Uh, This is a book that's filled with imperatives, so these statements of command, do these things. This is all over the book of James. Uh, There's a greater frequency of imperatives in James than in any other New Testament book. Uh, I think the statistic is James has 108 verses and 54 imperatives in there, so exactly half. So literally, on average, every other verse has a command to do something. There's an imperative there. So we're going to see that lots as we go through this book together. And uh, sometimes we don't, we don't notice just how many imperatives there are because of how things get translated and explained in English, but uh, they're all over the place, so we'll see those lots. It's a very practical book. James is a very, very practical book. And here's the thing. B- behind the book of James, the writing of the book of James, there's no uh, complex theological dispute that, that caused James to need to write this letter. That's not going on there. So you're not, you're not going to have a hugely difficult time translating James into our culture today. Uh, you, 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 of course, have to do a little bit of careful historical reading in some spots. But by and large, it's very easy to kind of transfer stuff over into our world. So you're not, you're not going to see stuff about you know, Jews and Gentiles and circumcision and apocalyptic imagery and some of these other things that can make the Bible very difficult. These, these aren't there. Very practical, everyday things James is dealing with. So, uh, some of the sorts of things that James wants to deal with in his letter. Money, suffering, temptation, speech, controlling your tongue, prayer. These are some of the main things that James wants to deal with. And these are things that we all can recognize as very practical issues for us. 
so this, again, one of the reasons that people love the book of James. Okay, so these are some of the things that, that have made James uh, unique and interesting and attractive to many people. But there's the other side. Because by and large, the book of James has been marginalized throughout the church's history. It's considered one of the forgotten books of the Bible to a lot of people. And we might be surprised by that given everything that that we're saying about it, right? It's, It's punchy, it's direct, it's clear, it's easily applicable. But some people have taken issue with how uh, apparently non-theological the book of James is. And what they mean by that when they say that is that uh, some people have thought, okay, well, what can you really get from the book of James? You know, what can can you really gather from it that's going to feed your soul? Jesus' name is mentioned twice in the whole book. The Holy Spirit isn't mentioned at all. Cross, not mentioned at all. So these things that are so central to the Christian faith are just not there. They're not even in the book, period. So, you know, people think it's just a bunch of commands to, to do things. Just do this. Don't do that. That's all that you're going to see in the book of James, some people have said. So it's, it's for these reasons that the great Martin Luther, the man who essentially kick-started the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther said this about the book of James. He said, Therefore, St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to some other books, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Martin Luther. So this is one of the things that has really hampered James's reputation in the Protestant church. The great Martin Luther, for, for whom we all owe a debt. We wouldn't be here without him. He thought it was an epistle of straw. A right straw epistle is, is what he actually said. So, now, I, I, I love Martin Luther. He's a brilliant guy, brilliant theologian. Like I said, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. But we are going to respectfully disagree with Mr. Luther on this one. We're going to disagree with him, and here's, here's why. And I want us to understand why, because he does have a point. You know, given his reasoning, he has, a, he has a point in what he's trying to say when he's saying that there's not much there of the gospel. So on a surface reading, yes, James can seem like it's all about do's and don'ts, very moralistic. It can, it can seem very anti-spiritual, very anti-gospel. But... When we read James closely, you you realize that this is a book that is just soaked, soaked, soaked in the character of God himself. And hopefully we won't won't miss this as we go through James together. And And I pray that we can make this clear and really realize that that's what's going on in this book. Because what's going on in James is actually this very thoughtful reflection on who God is, it's looking to him, reflecting on who he is, the character of God, foundationally, and then in light of that, leading into how we ought to live our lives, all the very practical stuff that we were talking about. And once you realize this, once you, once you realize this soaked in the character of God idea, you see it all over the place. And so I, I just want to put that out there so we can, be, we can be paying attention to that, we can be looking for that, We can be seeing all these places where James is pointing to God. Realize what he's like. And here's the reason why I think this is so important, especially when we're we're doing a series like this. And we just came out of, a little while ago, this pastoral epistles series that's also very practical, all about how to live in the here and now. So the reason why this is important is because the last thing any of us here need is simply to be told what to do. 
What we need is an encounter with the living God. And I believe that firmly. With all my heart, I believe that firmly. For too many of us, Christianity, church, Bible, it's all about just being told what to do. I'm not sure what to do. I need to know what to do. I just want to know what to do so I can get on with my life. And, and for many of us, that's all we want. And we're content with that. And that's all we really desire. And there's a problem there. There's a problem there because, because I, I just want to make clear too, how we live, actions, ethics, the way we conduct ourselves on a daily basis, very important. Very, very important. James will make that clear. Abundantly clear. But what's it rooted in? Is the question. What's it rooted in? This is what James is concerned about. He wants us to look at God, to learn, to recognize, to see what he's actually, actually like, and let that feed into our ethics, our actions, how we reflect his character into the world around us. But you need the first step of beholding God before you move on to that second step. Very important. Or else you're going to see it like how Martin Luther did. So, just want to put that out there at the very beginning. So let's keep all of that in mind, and let's actually get into the text here, after all of that. So, if you've got a Bible with you, James 1, 1, starting at the beginning. Very good place to start. This is the NRSV uh, translation that I believe will be on the screen. So, let's read this together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, Consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. But ask in faith, never doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being a double-minded, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do ask that you can give us soft hearts to hear your word to us. And Lord, we, we, want, to, uh, we want to see you today uh, through this worship service as we go about our weeks, but especially as we take focused time to dig into your scriptures that you've given to us. We ask that we can actually see you and Lord, I do, I do pray that just, just as we were talking about, that this can be an opportunity for us to just see your character, your goodness, who you actually are, uh, a lot clearer than maybe we have before. And Holy Spirit, you know where everybody here is at, the things they're dealing with, uh, where they're at with you, and I ask that you can just do your gracious work of ministering to people's hearts, making things clear, convicting, teaching, comforting. And just help us to hear you and to see you and to understand just what sort of God it is that we serve. In Jesus' name, amen. So our, our book starts off by the author identifying himself, James, right at the start there. And uh, there, there's some dispute about which James this could perhaps be. There's a few candidates 
in the Bible of, of which James this could maybe be, but we have quite good reason to believe that this is the son of Joseph and Mary, therefore the brother, or the half-brother, of Jesus. The brother of God in the flesh, writing a book to us. And he identifies himself as a slave of God and of Jesus. You'll notice most translations will say servant here because they don't want to deal with the idea of slavery and bring that sort of language into it. But really, the actual word that James is using here is slave, distinctly that word. And the idea is utter commitment to a master, utter allegiance, utter devotion. So not not someone who sometimes serves occasionally and therefore they're a servant, but someone who belongs to his master. So family connection doesn't matter to James. Not going to bring that up. Not going to play that card. This is how he wants to be known. Slave of Jesus Christ. James uh, then says who he's writing to. He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which likely refers to a group of Jewish Christian congregations that are outside of Israel. And then he gets right down to business outside of that. He says, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So this is quite the verse. Because there's a huge, huge claim being made here. Uh, The old King James translation said, Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into diverse temptations. Is how it says it. And it kind of comes across like, okay, all joy, all the time, no matter what you're facing, everything, everything, everything joy. But the word all here isn't referring to everything that you should count as joy. It's an adjective. It's, it's describing the sort of joy we're supposed to have. Pure joy. Entire joy. Nothing but joy. And so the idea is that when trials come our way, we don't, we don't have to see them as you know, a 99% opportunity to be discouraged and to complain and to grumble about them with maybe a little bit of a silver lining that there's something good that we can learn through it. James is saying, no, all joy, pure joy, is how we can see these things. And you notice, the question that, that should come to mind for us after that is, okay, well, why, why would we do that? Why, why would I count this as joy? Is it just because it's important to see the glass half full? Or something like that? But James says, consider it nothing but joy because you know that your faith produces endurance. In other words, this endurance, just hear this, this is so important, this endurance, this steadfastness, this virtue is to be seen as having such a high value, so important, so good, so desirable, that just knowing that it's coming our way, knowing that it's coming down the pipe, makes it so the current time of trial and suffering can be thought of as a joyful thing. That's, that's what impressed upon me as I was studying this, this week. This endurance is to be so highly valued that it has power for the present trial and suffering that I'm going through. And notice this word consider. He's not saying enjoy your suffering. He's not saying what you think is bad is actually good and you just need a change of perspective. He's not saying pretend everything's fine. That's probably the temptation a lot of us would, would have. Just pretend it's okay. Put a smile on your face. James isn't interested in emotion here. He's interested in thought. 
And I find that incredibly, incredibly interesting. He's saying, consider. And then later he's saying, because you know. He's interested in thought. And and I find this so interesting in our culture when we use the word I feel when it doesn't even make sense. I feel that I want to do this. I feel that that's a nice shirt you're wearing. Like we, we say this all the time. makes no sense half the time when we say it. And I remember being taught in school, this, this might be a more recent thing. I remember being taught in school, if you're trying to convince somebody of your perspective, so you're in a debate or you're presenting something or you're public speaking, whatever, don't, don't say I think. Say I feel. That's how you want to communicate. I remember learning this. And there's this real underlying idea that thoughts are kind of cold, sterile, powerless, you know, sort of flippant things that don't really matter that much. And emotions, impulses, visceral gut feelings, that's what really matters. And that's where your real self truly lies. And it's just baloney. It's just complete garbage. Like, it's complete garbage, especially in the Christian life. It's complete garbage. Now, feelings matter. Absolutely, feelings matter. But James is aware of the power of thought here. And I want us to think of that. He's aware of the power of thought, right thought, correct thought. And he knows that this is where the battle really lies when it comes to facing trials. He knows he can't change your situation. James knows that he can't just say, okay, you got to feel joyful. You just got to cheer up, feel better about the whole thing. He knows that he can't do that, but he can remind us to think to consider the situation differently, rightly. And to know, to know that endurance will produce steadfastness, or sorry, that these trials will produce steadfastness and endurance. He wants us to think and to know. And let me just say, I, I, I want to make this very clear, that I realize deep down in my heart that this is a difficult, difficult text. Talking about trials and suffering And how to approach them Christianly and how to approach them biblically is not ever something that should be talked about casually. And I realize that. And I want you to know, as people who are hearing this right now, that I realize that. Uh, There are real people going through real trying times in this room right now. And the last thing that I would ever want is for you to see the word of God in the scriptures as something that is just kind of powerless and offering you a glib sort of formula that doesn't actually work in real life. And so, I, I, like I was praying before, I do pray that our hearts can be softened to hear what God actually has to say to us. And I want you to know that I've been praying for you. Uh, just last night, as I was kind of looking over some stuff and, and finishing some things up on this, I, I just realized that I need to stop and I need to pray about this, because this isn't something that you can just explain the text clearly enough, and then all of a sudden the penny drops. This is something where we just need God to be gracious to us and give us strength and help us to be clear to us. So I I do hope that we can just hear this clearly and have our hearts be softened to what God might be saying to us. And as I've been uh, praying through this text and dealing with it, one of the main things that I felt convicted of is just this importance of valuing, treasuring, longing for endurance. We need to long for it so much that this passage can come across not as an empty little platitude or just a little saying that has no real power, but as a sovereign promise of grace. Because that's what it really is. And I want, I want to be able to value this endurance, to chase after it so much, because if I don't, this will seem like a raw deal every time. The idea of, hey, you're going to go through some trials, but you get endurance out of the deal. If I'm not valuing that endurance, that's just going to be an awful deal. 
always. But if I recognize endurance's value, if I actually want this, then I can read this and it can actually be a word of comfort to me. And we can actually realize that considering trials as joy is possible. Not just a little silver lining, but a real possibility. So, why value endurance though? You know, like, why, why value it? Why care about it? Why not just avoid suffering entirely as much as possible and therefore negate the need for endurance? Some of us try to do that. All of us try to do that. Let's be realistic. We want to avoid it so that we don't have to worry about that endurance. So why even have it? Why long for it? Hebrews 12, 1-2 says this, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is the one that endured. And he's the one that endured in the only way that actually matters. And that matters ultimately. He endured the cross and James wants us to look to Jesus and to be like him. God's people need to look like him. That's his point throughout this book. So we need to move on here. If you notice uh, at the end of verse 4, James commands us to let endurance have its full effect so that we might be lacking in nothing. But then he immediately goes on to say, if any of you is lacking wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it'll be given to you. Now this if here isn't really much of an if because I think we can all admit that we all lack wisdom generally and in certain moments we, we very clearly lack it. So it's not very much of an if. So when we do lack it, James's command is, ask God, it'll be given to you. And notice that this isn't an abrupt topic change that's happening here. This isn't just talking about trials, okay, and now we're moving on to this idea of prayer and wisdom. This is the thing that's very interesting to me. James could have spoken about lacking anything. Okay, so he's talking about trials, he's moving on from that, and he could have said, okay, now if any of you lacks comfort, ask God. If any of you lacks strength, ask God. If any of you lacks just deliverance from what's bothering you, ask God. But he picks wisdom. He picks wisdom. And this is what is needed to walk through trials, is what James is implying here. Wisdom is what is needed to handle this rightly. And then this beautiful promise that comes right after that God gives generously and ungrudgingly. The words here can be uh, translated in different ways, but the picture is of God giving with no reservations, no ulterior motive, no hesitation, single-minded. He just wants to do this. So it's, it's not an idea of, well, you didn't handle it so well last time I give you wisdom, so maybe I'll hold off. Like, that's what we would do. But the picture of is, a, is of a God who just does not even hold back, generously provides wisdom. And... Uh, Notice that this is one of those places, again, where James wants us to be aware of the character of God. And that should inform our actions. He's not mainly giving us a command to ask. The main command isn't just to pray and then he's throwing some theological spice on top of it. He's saying, realize this. Realize that this is the God who you serve. This is what he's like. He gives generously, without reservation, without holding back. And then James goes on to say, 
but ask in faith, never doubting. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, remember the context here, please. James is talking about trials, and he's talking about wisdom to endure them. This verse is sometimes read to, to support the idea that faith is a, sort of some kind of currency that you can use to kind of buy things from God. You know, you have enough of it. You have enough faith in your prayers. You kind of store it up. You can launch a really good prayer, and all of a sudden you'll get whatever you want. And some people see that because it's saying, ask in faith, don't doubt. So as long as you don't doubt, your bases are covered, and you're okay. And that's a very, very tragic reading of this verse. It's not just a bad reading of this verse. It's a tragic reading of this verse. And the reason why it's tragic is because it takes the focus entirely off of God, his generosity, his character, which is what James is getting at, and it all of a sudden turns the focus onto us. How's my faith doing? How strong in faith am I? It's a complete shift of focus that James never intended at all. And so why why would that be James's point here, if that's what he's saying? He's just finished reminding us about God about who, who he's like, about what he's like. He's a giving God. He'll give wisdom without reservation, without any grudges. And he says, trust, have faith that he's like this. That this is the sort of God that he is. The word used for doubt here has to do with an intellectual weighing of matters that leads to wavering or hesitation like vacillating, you're thinking really hard and you're kind of going back and forth. That's, that's what the word that's used for doubt here kind of means. And James is saying, don't doubt his goodness. Don't doubt his character. Don't waver back and forth on believing who this God is. So it's not about buying God's favor with the power of our faith. That's not at all what James is getting at here. And think about why James would want to emphasize this at this point. You know, he's talking about trials, he's talking about suffering, he's talking about dealing with struggle. And what's the temptation for all of us whenever we're going through trials? It's to doubt the goodness of God. Every single one of us, you're going through a trial, you're praying about it, things aren't getting better, you doubt the goodness of God. You start to wonder, where's God in this? Does he actually love me? Is he taking care of me? That's the temptation for all of us. And James is aware of that, and that's why he hits on this right away. Don't doubt that. Realize who he is. Trust his character. Trust who he is. Know that this is an opportunity to grow in endurance. Trust that he wants to give you wisdom and don't doubt his character. And you know, when, when we think about doubt, like when you just think about the idea of doubt in a general sense, we often kind of think of like a healthy skepticism. That's a term that we use. Healthy skepticism. And there's kind of this idea that we stand far off from something We kind of look at it, we observe it, we kind of figure it out, we decide whether it's worth committing to, and that's this healthy skepticism. There's no real risk involved, we're very uninvolved in it, but James is very aware of the power of how we think. He's saying that's not how it works with God. That's not how it works when it comes to knowing him, knowing his character. Doubting God's character has very practical outcomes. And James is aware of this. James is aware of this as a former doubter himself. You read the Gospels and it talks about how his brothers didn't believe in him during his earthly ministry. So he's aware of this. Very practical outcomes, doubting God. He says it makes you like a wave of the sea, driven, tossed by the wind, double-minded, unstable in every sort of way. 
And just think about how true this is. So you're starting to go through some hard, trying times. Dealing with some sort of trouble, some sort of way in your life. Makes you start to doubt God's goodness. To kind of question whether he's actually a good God, whether he's actually gracious. And some of your closest friends who who have been a a real spiritual encouragement to you in the past, you're, you're just getting sick of them. You're getting sick of hearing them talk about God's grace and his love and his kindness. You're getting sick of hearing them worship God with just full hearts because you're dealing with this and they're not. So you start to think, okay, well, maybe God loves them more than me or something because I'm not dealing, they're not dealing with this stuff that I'm dealing with. This isn't getting any better for me. So you stop meeting with them. You stop spending time with them. And you, you lose that blessing. You lose that grace in your life. Or you think, Okay, God's obviously not answering my prayers. So what's the point of praying? I'm still dealing with this. He, he obviously doesn't care about me. What's the point of praying? Reading scripture, worshiping, repenting, all these things aren't alleviating my suffering. So obviously God doesn't care. Obviously there's no point in continuing in them. And just like that, this so-called healthy skepticism that we think is so uninvolved and we think is so neutral and safe, all of a sudden, just like that, it's produced a spiritual coldness in us that we, we never could have seen coming. Because it's just brilliant the way that James puts his finger on this. He knows that this thing leads to this. This doubt of God's character is going to lead to some dangerous places that you don't want to be. He's not saying it's going to be easy. At all, he's not, he's not at all saying it's going to be easy. He's calling them trials. But he's saying you can trust God's character through them. You can know he's going to produce endurance in you through them. And he wants us to hold on to that promise so strongly. Because he's, he's aware of what this is going to produce in us on the dangerous side. And this is what James is addressing. And the weapon against it, he says, ask in faith. So again, not, not this faith bank that we store up merit. Ask in faith. Not a powerful faith because it's so strong, but a powerful faith because of the one in whom it rests. Huge difference, and we need to understand that. Huge, huge difference. We talk about justification by faith all the time. Like a very important thing in the Protestant church. Did you know you're not justified by faith? Uh-oh. You're justified by Jesus. You're justified by Jesus, and your faith, however threadbare it might be, is what links you to him. And that's a comfort, and we need to know that. That's a comfort to those of us who think, oh, my faith isn't strong enough. I don't have as strong a faith as this person next to me. That's not, Jesus is the one who justifies you. Small faith, great God. Jesus says, have faith the size of a mustard seed. That's all I'm asking. It's me who does the work. So just remember the difference between that there. Not justified by faith, justified by faith in Jesus, but it's Jesus who does the work. James doesn't care how big and strong the thread is that attaches you to God. He cares that it's there. He wants it to be there. He wants you to trust in God. And most importantly, he wants you to know the one that it's attached to. And be aware of his character, his generosity, his goodness. These uh, last three verses here uh, that talk about the lowly believer boasting and being raised up and the, the rich boasting and being brought low. This topic will come up later, so we won't deal with it too much here. Wealth and poverty, that, that comes up lots in the book of James. But uh, I'll just mention for now that this section has often been called the great reversal. 
And James here is reminding that trials are a leveling sort of experience in this life. Trials are a leveling experience. You're rich, you're wealthy, it doesn't keep you away from suffering, not at all. Everyone has struggles. Being rich doesn't protect you from them. And even more, being rich doesn't protect you from death. Says that very clearly. Like a flower of the grass, they'll pass away. So even here, James is again getting at our, at our worldview, at the way we look at some of these sorts of things. He's getting at our worldview. Do we think of wealth as the thing that actually matters when it comes down to it? And James is saying, no. We need, we need to have the true perspective of these things. We see through the distinction between rich and poor, knowing that despite this appearance of power that the wealthy may have, that to God, in God's eyes, they're, they're just as fragile as a flower. And that's what he's getting at here. And like I said, wealth and poverty is one of the, the great themes that will come up in the, in the weeks ahead. So we'll, we'll look at that more later. In closing, I want, to, uh, I want to really leave us with this thought of valuing endurance in such a way that makes this text real to us. Prizing endurance so that we can actually know that it coming to us when we walk through trials is sufficient. And we can hope in that. Uh, Thomas Schmidt is an author who writes about a time when he met someone who forever changed his opinion of steadfastness and endurance and what it means to be patient. He writes about uh, meeting a woman named Mabel who was 89 years old. She was blind. She was nearly deaf. Her body was racked with cancer. She had been in a convalescent home for decades a good, good portion of her life, and for 25 years, she'd been completely bedridden. 25 years. The Gospels talk about a woman who has this discharge of blood for, for 12 years, and we think that's a long time. This is a person bedridden for 25 years. And uh, Thomas Schmidt, he writes, I asked her what she thought about as she passed her lonely days and nights. She said, I think about Jesus. I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote what she said. And she said, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kinds who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much about what I think. Lots of folks might think I'm old-fashioned for saying this, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And I, I just want us to know that's not, that's not delusion. That's not wishful thinking. That's real power. That's power to be able to say that. And as we look at the book of James, I, just, I, I, I pray so seriously that we can be eager to see Jesus himself to see him himself through it so that thinking about him, knowing him is enough to get us through those sorts of things. This uh, Mabel, she knew Jesus and his goodness. And it, and it didn't result in just some sort of religious, spiritual ideas that didn't make any real difference in her life. It resulted in incredible power that not many people can ever hope to have. And I just hope that even thinking of that can inspire us and can just draw us to, to this idea of looking at this the way that James is giving to us.
So may that be the same for us. Let's pray together. Holy God, I I do ask that you can let your word apply to our hearts as you would let it. And I ask that you can help us to just hear what your Holy Spirit is, is speaking to us right now. And Lord, all of us deal with, with trials. All of us deal with troubles. And many times, I feel that we, we look at a verse like this and a passage like this, and we think that this is just kind of a trite little saying that doesn't actually make any real difference. But Lord, I do ask that you can put in our hearts um, just a longing for steadfastness. A longing for endurance. Not because it's just a good virtue to have, but because your son endured. And we want to look like him. By your Holy Spirit, just give us the power to to desire to look like your son, Jesus Christ. Who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. Lord, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you arranged the world in such a way where you will bring good out of suffering. You will bring your glory and our joy out of difficult times as hard as that is for us to see now. And so just like James is reminding us, I ask you can help us by your Holy Spirit to think rightly. Pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.